Welcome to APJ's Pulse Podcast. I'm Amelia Sullivan. Value, data, ethics, professionalism, patient-centered. These are all things today's clinicians must account for in all settings. But what does it mean for you as a current student or future clinician? In this episode, we talked with APTA payment and regulatory staff expert Kara Gaynor and physical therapists Bud Langham and Hannah Johnson on what students should know about the healthcare landscape payment, and ethical practice. It also included advice on things like documentation, ethical decision-making, and how to navigate tough conversations while providing quality care to your patients. Here's our conversation with Kara, Bud, and Hannah. Okay, so we have a few guests on with us today, so instead of me introducing everyone, I'll let them introduce themselves. Kara, maybe you go first? Sure. Hi. Thanks, Amelia. Uh, this is Kara Gaynor. I am APTA's Director of Regulatory Affairs. I'm Hannah Johnson. I am a staff physical therapist working out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, I have my geriatric clinical specialist certification and I'm currently working on a PhD in professional communication and healthcare teams. Very good. And my name is Bud Langham. Uh, I'm a physical therapist as well and long-term member uh, the American Physical Therapy Association. I've served in a few different roles with the APTA, currently on the Government Affairs Committee and Post-Acute Care Workgroup. Uh, my day job is as the Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer for Encompass Health, the Home Health and Hospice Divisions of EHC, and I'm very happy to be here. Great. So really glad to have all of you guys on with us today. Uh, so we're just going to dive right in. So, Bud, the first question's for you. The new payment models that just came out in post-acute care represent a really dramatic shift towards value-based payment. So can you explain what that means for our listeners? Yes. So we, we've actually, if you've been in healthcare for very long at all, uh, you have, have heard this term value-based healthcare. Uh, and if you've been in for an extended period of time, 10, 15, 20 years, we were hearing it long ago, too, that the core of this concept is that our government, the Medicare platform, uh, in all settings, in acute, post-acute, in an outpatient, uh, Medicare is striving to not be a volume-driven system and no longer have an incentive for volume. Instead, to pivot to a paradigm where value is how we all get paid. And that creates some, some really great opportunities for us as physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech language pathologists, physicians across the entire ecosystem of healthcare that shift toward value is meaningful and it creates opportunities for us. In a, in, the, in a nutshell, I think I would summarize it uh, like this. Our new job in a value-based healthcare economy is to ensure that every dollar that is spent out of the Medicare system creates value, keeps patients out of the hospital, prolongs life, or prolongs uh, their satisfaction with their care. Okay, so let's expand on those opportunities that you mentioned. Uh, Hannah or Bud for this one. Let's go through both the opportunities and the challenges in these types of payment models. Yeah, of course. Uh, I think it creates an incredible set of opportunities for clinicians to distinguish themselves based on their clinical expertise, based on 
their unique body of knowledge and ability to drive a cost-effective outcome. We, we all know that um, it's hard today to go into um, the world of literature, of, of physical therapy literature, and clearly see that physical therapists drive um, better outcomes. Um, it's a growing body of knowledge, and we're doing better with that. But historically, it's been hard to see about our, our interventions and increasing outcomes, helping patients get better quicker. Uh, are we really having a significant impact? And in a, in a volume-based healthcare economy, um, there's not an incentive for create, saving costs. There's not really an incentive for um, making sure that everything you do is efficient and effective and patient-centered. Um, it's the right thing to do, and it has been for a very long time, but there just wasn't a great incentive for it. And in this value-based uh, healthcare world, the clinicians who truly are evidence-based, data-driven, and focused on improving outcomes helping patients meet their goals in a way that is more quick, efficient, and effective, create cost savings to the overall system. And they become the rock stars of the value-based healthcare economy, and they can start to collaborate with other clinicians who are like-minded in driving value. And so that opens the door for clinicians who, through the years, have been screaming, but my outcomes are better and I'm doing a better job and no one recognized that because it was volume-driven. The door is now open for those clinicians to succeed and to thrive. It also raises the bar for clinicians who've been kind of dragging along just doing the same old thing without a lot of effort, attention, and focus on improving themselves and their skill set and their overall professionalism raises the bar for them and it starts to create an environment where we can compete based on this idea of value, better outcomes at a lower cost. It it doesn't come without challenges, though. Okay, so going back to something that was mentioned earlier, Hannah, you touched on this a bit, but can you tell us a little bit more about the ethical challenges that the profession is facing right now? So in my answer, I... I want to reference the consensus statement by APTA, AOTA, and ASHA on clinical judgment that is on the APTA website and gives therapists a guide to how to stand up for their ethical decisions and their clinical decisions. Um, so in regards to that, some of the ethical challenges that staff therapists face are in the areas of productivity and more or less the, the metrics and the quotas that um, CMS allows, whereas the companies are you know, pressuring us to make those quotas, regardless of whether or not they're appropriate. The productivity does remain a focus under PDPM in the skilled nursing model, perhaps even more so than under the RUG model because less weight is placed on therapy services for reimbursement. And now for a quick break. When good things come together, the results can be rewarding. With LifeCare's enduring commitment to personalized care and your skills to restore independence, we achieve outstanding patient outcomes. We're better together. To learn more about LifeCare and to join our team, visit lifecarecareers.com. And now let's return to the show. 
All right, so let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, Bud, we'll start with you on this question. So how do you empower people to build an appropriate care plan? And then how do you advise them on having a conversation with their employer? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good question. So I'm going to tackle that from two perspectives. One, generally, and then the second, specifically, with respect to what we're doing at Encompass Health. I think generally... Um, it's very important for physical therapists to reflect back on their professional standards. And and honestly, uh, Hannah has mentioned ethics um, a couple of times and the challenges there. I think everyone needs to reflect back on our ethical principles as a professional association. So I think back to to that list of principles. Um, Principle three is physical therapists shall be accountable for making sound professional judgments. And that speaks to our core values of excellence and integrity. And principle seven is physical therapists shall promote organizational behaviors and business practices that benefit patients, clients, and society. And again, the core values of integrity and accountability. So it's important to reflect back on those and and feel empowered as clinicians to, to tackle these issues. And so you mentioned care planning. The care plan in all settings should be entirely based on the comprehensive assessment completed by the clinicians in the field or in the office or in the agency or in the hospital in collaboration with the other professionals who are part of that healthcare team. Maybe that's a physician, a nurse, OT, SLP, the aides, et cetera. That comprehensive assessment should be what drives the care plan along with the patient's own goals of care. Once you have those two elements of perspective and you you coordinate, collaborate with the physician, that should inform your care plan. Now, there's an extra step in there that we have um, embraced at Encompass Health where we've incorporated uh, a sophisticated data and analytics platform. We are, we are using technology and specifically machine learning to look back at millions of episodes of care and use data from all of that breadth and depth of experience to inform our care plans in the future, today and in the future. And so that helps us understand what is a just right care plan for a patient in terms of visits and the types of visits to help them have a positive outcome, to discharge to the community without a hospitalization. So all of that context comes together, and we're accountable for using that in a way that is efficient, effective, and appropriate. So that's how a care plan, at least at our company and in my personal perspective, that's how a care plan should come together. If there is a disagreement, then those disagreements should be discussed. But we should always remember that the patient is at the center of everything we do, and we provide that care within a healthcare ecosystem that has regulations, requirements, and expectations. And so it's really a a collaboration with the rest of the members of the team to make sure that that care plan is just right for that patient. If your clinical judgment bumps up against uh, your employer's expectations, then our first responsibility is to go to our employer and advocate and educate 
help them understand why this patient needs a different care plan versus whatever their opinion is. Sometimes that may mean that they need a more intensive care plan, need more visits, more services, more time. Sometimes it may mean that they need less, and we need to be advocates for a just right care plan in each and every instance. And when that disagreement goes beyond the clinician to supervisor, then there needs to be an appropriate path to do that. Kara, I want you to jump into this conversation as well. Um, Do you have anything else to add here, speaking specifically to ethical practice? Yeah, thanks, Amelia. Uh, So really, just to build off of what Hannah and Bud have stated, you know, I think that it's just important for the audience to remember that the goal of professional ethics is to arrive at a caring response in situations you encounter in the course of carrying out your professional role and its functions. And as Bud said, ethical actions are grounded in the patient's best interests and trust, and physical therapists and physical therapist assistants really need to prioritize the patient's interests even if it creates conflict with policy or organizational priorities. And, you know, the the code of ethics for the physical therapist delineates the ethical obligations of all physical therapists as determined by the House of Delegates of APTA. And fundamental to the code is the special obligation of physical therapists to empower, educate, and enable those with impairments, activity limitations, participation restrictions, and disabilities to facilitate greater independence, health, wellness, and enhanced quality of life. And then you have the standards of ethical conduct for the physical therapist assistant, which delineates the ethical obligations of all PTAs. And that really provides a foundation for conduct to which all PTAs should adhere. Um, And I think it's just, you know, I think my message would be that it's critically important to pay heed to ethical issues and ensuring best practices are implemented, and that a moral commitment enables physical therapists and physical therapist assistants to provide quality services for patients, working effectively with colleagues, and just maintaining the overall trust of the public. Yeah. And, Carol, this is Bud again. I'll just piggyback on that again. I think this all leads up to a question of what do I do? What do I do when I I absolutely disagree on what I am being asked to do or asked to not do? And I have a few thoughts on, on that, and I'd love for you two to chime in as well. And I remind folks, and I remind myself too, that if I have a, a disagreement with someone about a patient care plan, about a practice, about a policy, et cetera, um, I first need to be honest with myself that I might be wrong. And I need to be open to hearing from everyone and evaluating their feedback because I I just might be wrong. The the second thing I I think we all have to be aware of is that more is not always better when it comes to patient care. Then we're right back in that volume-based conundrum where we've lived for the last 30 years. And I think the third thing is you have to be confident that you can speak up and have a professional conversation, a crucial conversation with your supervisor or your supervisor's supervisor. And that has to be a safe place. And for that to be a safe place, there has to be um, common goals. There has to be respect for one another, and there has to be a desire to get to the proper resolution. And that may mean evaluating, is this the place where I really want to work? 
that may mean um, going above the supervisor. It may mean reaching out to a compliance department, and it may mean you do that anonymously. But there, are, in every organization, there is an appropriate path to escalate situations where you believe something is not right. And I think to do that, um, open-minded and um, and not overly prideful and being being open to the idea that maybe I'm the one that's wrong, but I feel like I need to escalate this and then have an open communication is, is really critical. All right. So let's build on that a little bit. And this could be from uh, any one of you. Um, okay. So how do you even approach a conversation like that? First question. And then let's say you've never had a conversation like this with an employer before. How do you start that conversation? And then how do you navigate that conversation? And I'm thinking, like, how do you maintain professionalism and then professional integrity? This is difficult for everyone, and it's often very uncomfortable because there uh, is often, if not almost always, an imbalance in power. And so we actually we talk about this in our organization quite a bit about how to have crucial conversations, and we reflect back on uh, on an old uh, business leadership book. I hate to call it old, but it's, it's been around a while, and uh, it's called Crucial Conversations. And they define a crucial conversation as a discussion between two or more people where the stakes are high, opinions vary. And emotions run strong. And I think that sounds like what we're talking about here. And my, my favorite chapter from that book and what I encourage members of my team and inside my organization to remember when they're about to have a crucial conversation with anyone is to focus on what you want. And if you ask yourself four simple questions, it really helps to guide your behavior when you're having these conversations and helps take the emotion out of it because there can be fear, anxiety, anger sometimes in these conversations. And so I encourage our folks to focus. And here, here are the four questions that help you focus. You ask yourself, what do I want here? So in this scenario, what do I want for me, for myself? What do I want in this situation? Second, what do I want for others? What do I want for my patients? What do I want for my colleagues? What do I want for my company? And that's the third question is, what do I want for my company? So it's, what do I want here? What do I want for others? What do I want for my company, my organization, my business, my professional association? What do I want? And then the last question is, what do I want for this relationship with this person that I'm about to engage on this very difficult issue where we disagree? And then finally, if you ask yourself those four questions, then you can ask yourself, how should I behave if I really want these outcomes? That helps to take the emotion out of it, the fight or flight response out of it, and it just keeps it really focused on that core issue. And oftentimes when we do that, we can get a resolution to these kind of problems right there in the office, the branch, the agency, the hospital, the clinic, the meeting room, and it doesn't have to escalate any further beyond that. So that would be the best um, advice I would provide in, in approaching someone about a conversation like this. Yeah, and Karen, I would just add, you know, I think just, and I think just to reiterate, managing your emotions 
um, and, you know, asking for the other party's perspective, um, you know, and and taking that into account and truly reflecting on, um, you know, what your issue is, but also, you know, what is their perspective, um, where are they coming from, um, and I think also just to help facilitate or, you know, help you prepare for those kinds of conversations, always just going back and looking at your code of ethics and recognizing and defining what the ethical issue is, um, you know, and deciding the right thing to do. What is the solution that you're seeking um, to Bud's point of what do you want here and what do you want for others? Um, and then, you know, approaching the conversation uh, professionally and gracefully and framing it in such a way that, you know, shows that you are, you are here to seek a mutual understanding and solution. Um, but I think I also just want to emphasize that whether it's you're approaching a conversation with an employer or you're just questioning, you know, a, a decision, you know, you can always reach out to your professional association for guidance. Um, you know, we have, we, we speak with members every single day. Um, and, you know, we share with them resources and answer questions and sometimes talk through some of these more difficult scenarios and kind of walk through a little bit what, you know, we're discussing on today's podcast just about the options available to them and how they can approach these conversations. Um, but certainly going back to, I think, what Hannah said, you know, reaching out to your uh, facility or organization's compliance officer and, you know, asking and finding out information on, um, you know, compliance and maybe, you know, as Hannah or Bud said, um, looking at, you know, are, are you confident in, in what you're thinking the regulation is? Um, do you have questions? Um, but certainly your compliance officer should be able to point you in the right direction. But if not, of course, contacting APTA and we can uh, set you down the right path. Those are all super helpful tips. Thank you guys so much. Um, okay, so next question is for Hannah, actually, because earlier you mentioned documentation. Um, as physical therapists, how do we ensure documentation supports the need for skilled care? That's an excellent question. Uh, I have three suggestions from what I was taught in, in therapy school as well as what I've seen in practice. The first is to use your professional vocabulary. There's a reason you know the scientific terminology and the language that conveys what you are doing and why you are doing it for this patient. And second, thinking through your own rationale. And if the documentation allows that, potentially having templates or just parts of it so that entering it doesn't take forever and Heaven forbid your employer should ask you for a time log as to why you're spending so much time documenting. And third, definitely knowing your scope of practice as related to other professionals on the team. So, for example, in a skilled nursing facility, if occupational therapy is working on the household mobility goal with the patient, they should not be documenting that they're doing gait with the patient. But if you, as a physical therapist or assistant, are working on specific gait deviations, energy conservation strategies as part of gait training, then you should document that accordingly and to know where your scope of practice bumps up against someone else's and or overlaps it. You know, when I think about 
documentation practices. Um, we encourage our teams to focus on timeliness of documentation. Uh, and, and of course, on, on documenting defensively. So we go through all the best practices for the correct professional terminology, um, understanding rules, regs, policies, and procedures, and documenting uh, within those and, and appropriately using appropriate abbreviations and all that. I think we often, especially in the home health setting, I think this is less a problem in the inpatient settings, but in the home health setting, there is a there is a an unfortunate temptation to not document at the time of the encounter and instead to take documentation home. And I think it's very unfortunate. And we know that memory degrades rapidly over time. And so the ability to recall the information and the interventions that you provided and performed in the home after you leave the patient's home um, is very suspect. And so from a documentation standpoint, one of the key best practices that we uh, expect from all of our clinicians is that documentation will be done at the time of the encounter or immediately thereafter if there is a reason that it couldn't be done while with the patient at the encounter. That's probably the only thing I would add. Yeah, and I just want to add, uh, as someone who's not a clinician, but as someone who used to review medical records for my job, um, and and at the time I had never worked for any sort of professional society, uh, so really reviewing medical records was my uh, foray into the healthcare world. You know, think about is your documentation telling a story and explaining and illustrating why what you provided uh, that, you know, the services, you, the interventions you furnished that day were medically reasonable and necessary for the patient. And just keeping in mind that, um, you know, obviously you are the expert, you know what you're doing and, and everything, but the documentation is being reviewed by someone who's not likely a physical therapist or even remotely familiar with physical therapy. It could be an attorney like myself. Um, and, and we have to tell from the medical record that, you know, the services were skilled and that the documentation supports the need for the services you provided that day. So always just keeping in the back of your mind that, um, you know, someone is going to who reviews, it, it's possible these documenta- the documentation gets reviewed and it's not going to be someone who's in the therapy world um, and likely it's going to be someone who's not, um, you know, yeah, has has maybe it could be someone who for the very first time is reviewing a physical therapy note. Um and so just always keeping that in the back of your mind as um you know, you want to make sure that you're as detailed as possible and communicating to that uh potential reviewer. And then just, you know, my little plug for always ensuring that your documentation complies with uh, you know, whatever the the payer requires. Uh, state law, possibly accreditation organizations like the Joint Commission and Commission on Accreditation of Rehabilitation Facilities. So always keeping that in the back of your mind as well, that there could be multiple uh, forces imposing uh, requirements on you. And you just always have to keep um, track of, you know, who the payer is, what the state laws require, are there third-party administrators involved, accreditation organizations, etc. And now for a quick break. Building a community that advances the profession of physical therapy to improve the health of society. 
APTA's mission statement reflects why we exist, you. Your efforts impact the lives of patients, students, and colleagues on a daily basis. Your engagement in the conversation and the work of this association is how we move this profession forward. Build your community by volunteering. View volunteer opportunities and sign up at engage.apta.org. Now, let's return to the show. Yeah, and for those students out there who are listening, don't worry. This is why you have CIs. This is why you're going to have a supervisor and mentors to help you and teach you how to do all of this stuff. Um, But the take-home message is documentation is super, super important. Okay, so let's move on just a little bit here. Um, This question is, again, for any of you. Are there any ethical decision-making tools out there that can help assist with that decision-making? There certainly are. There, There are lots of them. Um, I am fond of one in particular, uh, the RIPS model. Uh, this goes back to at least 2005 um, by Dolly Swisher and others, and it's it's a tool that is well-known to most physical therapists, at least those of us who've been around for a while and have, have delved in the, the ethics arena. Uh, the RIPS model is looking at the realm where the potential ethical issue uh, lives? Is it an individual situation? Is it an organizational issue? Is it a societal issue? Then it looks at the individual process. And then finally, what is the type of situation? So realm, individual process, and situation, the RITS model. And this is a, a tool. It's very simple to understand. It's easy to use. And it's easy to find out there in the literature. And in using this tool, um, Swisher tells us to Think about four steps. Recognize and define the ethical issues. Reflect on them. Decide the right thing to do and then implement, evaluate, and reassess. This is also the tool that our organization has adopted for ethical situations uh, across disciplines. And we have found it really helpful for us. Hannah, do you have anything to add here? The RIPS was also on my list. Uh, I really like that model. On the practical side, If you're having a difficulty applying a specific ethical principle to a specific issue that you have, I have personally found a lot of the ethics in practice articles from ET in Motion to be very helpful in spurring my thought process about, well, what if I were to encounter a similar situation or how could I apply this to a situation that I'm facing right now? So I think those, those practice columns make the code of ethics and the principles and the decision-making very concrete for the clinician with his or her boots on the ground. Kara, I know you had some resources you wanted to mention as well. Checking out what's on the APTA website, that we have a ton of resources on ethics and professionalism, and it um, talks about the resources that uh, Bud and Hannah mentioned, uh, you know, has access to numerous case scenarios and analysis. Uh, articles, so definitely check that out. Um, and if you don't know where it's on the where it is on the site, uh, you know it's under practice and patient care ethics and professionalism. Kara, so I wanted to take the time to have you talk a little bit about the joint statement that APTA put out on clinical judgment uh, within the past few years. You probably heard Hannah at the top of the podcast mention a joint statement that APTA, AOTA, and ASHA 
put out several years ago on clinical judgment. And although it was released several years ago, it still is very pertinent and relevant to today. And so I, I don't know if everyone listening has actually ever seen it, um, but it basically outlines, uh, you know, it, it's a consensus statement on clinical judgment and outlines how and why decisions regarding patient and client care should be made by clinicians in accordance with their clinical judgment. And then, you know, emphasizes that physical therapists have an ethical responsibility to deliver only services that are medically necessary and in the patient's best interest based on their independent clinical reasoning and judgment, as well as objective data. And then it goes through some steps at the end of their statement um, on what you can do to take action if you witness or become engaged in treatment or billing practices that may be suspect and how to take appropriate steps to stop them. And I bring this consensus statement up because it certainly uh, has become more uh, relevant, uh, you know, particularly as we transition to these new payment models, um, you know, and this, you know, these payment models in the skilled nursing facility and home health settings are really designed to empower physical therapists and other clinicians to use their clinical judgment to, de- to decide, you know, what care is necessary and appropriate for the patient by getting away from that you know, visit-driven or minute-driven uh, model. And, you know, I think it's just important to have that, you know, on hand, um, you know, if if clinical judgment is ever questioned or if there are, you know, inappropriate mandates being placed on providers, having that to say, well, my professional association along with the other therapy professional associations uh, released this consensus statement on clinical judgment, you know, and here's all of the reasons why, uh, kind of boiled down into one document, uh, why decisions regarding patient care should really be made by me, the clinician. Um, so it's definitely something to check out, and please feel free to share it with others. It's on our uh, our Integrity and Practice site, um, which is kind of a microsite of the ABTA site right now, but um, certainly feel free to check that out. So before we close, I do want to acknowledge that many of our listeners are uh, current students, and so much of this information is going to be so crucial for them to take into their careers post-graduation and as they transition into future clinicians, right? Uh, But considering they're students now, what are some things that you all think they should keep in mind as students and as they make that transition into the profession? The most recent former student as well as a clinical instructor, one thing I remind my students is that the ethical questions need to be at the heart of whatever jobs they interview for, whatever questions you ask prospective employers to make sure that you can be, as a student, on board with the employer's mission and vision and what actually happens on the ground. Additionally, just explore the practice settings with your clinicals and be open to looking at a different setting, which, for example, not necessarily being locked into long-term care or inpatient acute care, but just being willing to explore those settings because the ethical issues in one setting may not necessarily be as challenging in another setting. Yeah, for students, I think um, it's such a great time. 
to be graduating and coming into healthcare. It's also a really challenging time, and seasons like these and tend to kind of raise the bar for all of us, and it has um, it creates kind of a cleansing process for the profession, where the, the only people who can endure being in times of change like this are the people who are really in it for the right reasons. Like they are, they are driven to help people rehab. And so I think it's it's uh, it's a great time. I, I graduated in uh, 1999 from PT school when the balanced budget amendment had um, serious effects on the job market for physical therapists, and it took several years to come back. And we're we're in kind of a similar time right now. It's there's quite a bit of turmoil. There's a lot of unknown as we transition to these new payment models, and there are more on the horizon. So I think students need to make sure when they're coming out that they're fully invested in this profession. I think that they should adhere to one of our principles in the ethics, the code of ethics, to be a lifelong learner. Never stop learning and pursuing information and whatever setting they go into, make sure that they fully understand the regs, rules, and requirements for that setting. From the payers, policies, and procedures for the employer, make sure that they understand it so that they know where the sources of truth are. I think it's dangerous to be a clinician practicing in a setting where you're totally dependent on someone else to tell you what the rules are. That puts you in a really vulnerable um, state. And so I encourage young clinicians and students, whatever setting you go into, whatever sector you go into, to make sure that you understand the rules, regs, and where to go for the most current information yourself. Be be a lifelong learner. And then along uh, Hannah's uh, lines, um, make sure when you're interviewing that you accept a position with an organization that aligns with your values. That's really critical. And if they don't, then move on. And don't let economics be the sole or even the major factor in where you choose to exercise your professional skills. It's much more than a job. It is a profession, and we're professionals. And so you have to make sure if you're going to be successful that you're in a place where you can grow, you can mature as a clinician, and you have all the support and help that you need to do so. Yeah, I'll just add that, you know, students, new grads, uh, clinicians who've been practicing for 20 years, you can always reach out to ABTA, the Professional Association, and ask questions. Uh, you know, you can contact us 24-7 via email or phone. And, you know, the we have PTs on staff. We have attorneys on staff. Not that we give legal advice, but, you know, we have so many different subject matter experts with so many different backgrounds that we can, you know, we are here to help you um, and want to, you know, answer any questions you have and help you navigate uh, this evolving, ever-shifting healthcare environment. So please always feel free to reach out to us. Well, we're going to wrap this conversation here, uh, but to our listeners, students, or clinicians, Always remember you can reach out to APTA with any questions or if you're in need of resources or information, we're always here to help you be the best professional you can be.
And I want to be sure to thank our guests, uh, Kara, Bud, Hannah. Thank you guys so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. To learn more and view APTA's latest resources and information on payment and regulatory issues, visit apta.org payment. APTA podcasts like this one are available on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. I'm Amelia Sullivan. Thanks for listening.